may be seated. Well, as I told the, the kiddos up here a couple weeks ago, my family and I took a trip, and uh, we went actually with my parents to Branson, Missouri, and I had not ever been there before. Who's been to Branson here in the congregation? All right, quite a few, quite a few. Uh, I didn't really know what to expect. Honestly, I didn't look it up beforehand. I was just on, that was the least planning I had ever done for a vacation. I was just, I'd gotten done with the youth ball retreat, and I was just like, we're going on vacation. Here we go. And uh, so I really didn't know what to expect. Uh, it's a really pretty area, lots of trees and hills. It's kind of in the, the Ozark Mountains there. And uh, a lot of really interesting buildings. There was a building that looked kind of like, the, I guess, the uh, Empire State Building with King Kong climbing on the top of it. There was a, a building made to look like it was upside down, like it had been dropped from the sky. There was a building that you know, looked like an earthquake had ravaged it. Um, I think my favorite structure, building, uh, was the Titanic Museum. And if you haven't been there, you'll know which one the Titanic Museum is because the building looks like the Titanic. So it's this huge building, looks like the Titanic, and you go inside and it's this uh, really neat museum. And uh, we saw, well, we saw an illusionist show, picked up all my tricks there, uh, spent too much money on little magic tricks, but you know, it's fine, it's vacation. But it was overall, it was a relaxing and fun trip. Uh, so we're grateful for that opportunity. But on the Sunday that we were in Branson, that Sunday morning, uh, we tuned into the service. It's one of the, the great things, I guess, that did come out of the pandemic. We can live stream now, and so we were uh, with you in spirit in the service. And that Sunday, Harry preached on a passage in 2 Samuel 12, where the prophet Nathan had confronted and rebuked King David regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And, and then what was uh, essentially the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Well, Uriah was, if you remember, a soldier in David's army. And he wasn't just any lowly soldier. He was one of the list of David's mighty men. Uh, you can fact check me if you want in 2 Samuel chapter 23. But as one of David's mighty men, he was a trusted leader in his army. And David had intentionally sent him to his death on the battlefield because Bathsheba was pregnant with David's baby. No, definitely not a gold star for, for David in that moment. Really messed up. And it would be a blemish on his public record, even well after David died. We even see this in uh, 1 Kings chapter 15. It starts out nice, remembering David. It says, Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life, comma, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Ouch. And the account of David's failure obviously endures to this day. It's been canonized in the pages of Scripture for all of posterity and it's got to really stink. Of all places to have, you know, your biggest failure published, to be published on the pages of Scripture, not really what I would call ideal. But in spite of David's failure and the ultimate fallout that would continue to plague really the rest of his life with uh, complicated family dynamics, David was remembered as a great king. Even the Apostle Paul notes in his speech in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, uh, he referenced uh, to David being a man after God's own heart. That's some, some high praise. 
But it's vitally important that we understand that what made David a man after God's own heart was not his moral perfection, but his repentant heart. David wasn't perfect. He messed up, and in a couple big ways. But the Bible tells us a little more about this unfortunate episode in David's life. You just kind of have to know where to find it, because it's not in Kings where the scene happens, but it's in the book of Psalms, specifically chapter 51. So we're going to flip there now, but before we read, let us pray that God's Spirit would lead us and guide us. Lord of heaven and earth, we thank you for your presence among us. And may your Spirit be our teacher, our counselor, and our guide this morning as we read and study your word. Speak to our hearts that we might grow in faith and holiness. Amen. So Psalm chapter 51 begins with a little heading. And, and these little headings are not the little headings added in modern day Bibles, like when Jesus gives the parable of the sower and above the passage it says parable of the sower. That's what modern Bibles do. These headings were little notations present in the ancient text. And sometimes they provide some helpful context, and this is one of those times. So we're going to start with that little header that a lot of times we skip over. It says, To the leader, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So this is talking specifically about that scene in 2 Samuel. But this is interesting because this isn't just talking about the account. This is like an inside glimpse into what's going on in David's mind and his heart. This is a psalm. This is a prayer. This is a prayer. Uh, a song that he offers to God in response. So keep that in mind as we read these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified in your sentence and blameless when you pass judgment. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, that I, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain, me, uh, sustain in me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from bloodshed, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your deliverance. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you have no delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you would not be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. 
then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of David to the Lord our God. Thanks be to God. So I've split this psalm into, into three parts. It's, it's 19 verses. It's not a, a super long read, but there's a lot in there. So uh, to kind of help us frame it up, I've split it into three parts. The first being verses 1 through 5, speaking about repentance. The second part being verses 6 through 12, revival. And the third part, verses 13 through 19, response. So verses 1 through 5, repentance. So again, we know the context. We know what David did. I'm not going to rehash all that. But you know, if we think about it, he's also the king, right? He's the king of the nation. And as a king, especially probably in that day and age, if he wanted to be just a ruthless king and take whoever he wanted as his wife and have killed whoever he wanted to have killed, he probably could have done it with no remorse or, or obstacle whatsoever. Kings and emperors and other nations saw themselves as God. They didn't have to answer to anyone else. If anyone could have had the power to omit themselves from punishment and say, I'm above the law, it would have been David. Or if someone, or if, or if anyone had to pay some sort of atonement, if anyone could have essentially bought their forgiveness, it was the king. But David rightly understood the sovereignty of God Most High, and he knew the holiness of God and God's abhorrence and judgment of sin. David knew that while God had called him to hold a special status as king of the nation, David also knew with all his heart that he was still but a mortal man, a sinful man, held accountable by God. And he felt the weight and shame and guilt uh, of his sin. So he begins his psalm really with the most helpless words that, we, that anyone could offer. Have mercy on me. He's got nothing else to give. That's someone who knows that they have nothing to offer but simply asking for mercy. And he doesn't give some kind of soft lead in. He's like, hey, God, remember this, you know, and kind of slowly getting to the point. He doesn't try to deflect the blame and say, you know, well, no one tried to stop me or anything like that. He doesn't try to justify his actions. He doesn't try to downplay his actions. And he's not ignoring it, hoping, you know, maybe just over the course of time that, that the, the talk about it will subside, the memory of it will, will go away. David knew that none of that would satisfy. He knew he couldn't just avoid his sin. And David also knew that even though he was king, king of the nation, he alone could do nothing. And his only recourse was to rely simply on the mercy of God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. And in verse 5, David continues, and he understands how helpless his state is. Indeed, I was born guilty, a sinner when my mother conceived me, David knew of the the radical corruption of the human heart. So much so that he was born a sinner. 
born to seek selfish gain. And this is a universal truth for all of humanity. We are all born into sin. Paul alludes to this in Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The modern theological term that we would uh, identify this as the doctrine of original sin. Sounds, sounds really exciting, but things we talk about at seminary. The doctrine of original sin. It's the sin of Adam. It's the consequence of the fall that is for all pos- posterity. And it's the price of sin. The wages of sin, as Paul says, is death. Sin has a very real consequence. And few have probably pondered the depth of sin's consequences more than the famous preacher Jonathan Edwards. Anybody know that name, Jonathan Edwards? Oh, there's his picture. That's actually a nice picture of him. I've got a book here, and he looks a little more stern on the cover of the book. But uh, Jonathan Edwards is, was probably the most instrumental preacher in what was known as in American history as the Great Awakening. Uh, This period of time was not too far um, before the American Revolution. The Great Awakening kind of peaked in the 1730s and 1740s. And just to place him in context, Jonathan Edwards was actually only three years older than Benjamin Franklin. But where Franklin would live a long life and see the end of the Revolution, Edwards' life was cut short and he died Uh, before the revolution ever really kicked off in 1758. Uh, He died at the age of 55 due due to complications from uh, smallpox inoculation. For more context, uh, Edwards was also born in the exact same year as John Wesley, who would be the leader of the revival movement in England that would end up leading to the, the Methodist church as we know it today. And just one more side little fun fact, Jonathan Edwards was also the grandfather of Aaron Burr. If you know who Aaron Burr was, you probably know, well, maybe he was the vice president for Thomas Jefferson, but probably more famously known as the person who shot who? Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, there's a whole Broadway play about it. Yeah, that one. Um, So so Aaron Burr was his grandson. So fun facts, not necessarily important for the sermon. But Jonathan Edwards, he he led a fascinating life. I encourage you, if you're into biographies, maybe consider him for your next book selection. And uh, Edwards is most well-known for a a doozy of a sermon. Um, Anybody know what that sermon's called? Yeah, that one, yeah. Yeah. Is Is that college course reading? Oh, okay, there you go, okay, so... So Paige is going to come finish the sermon for me. But yeah, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, some light reading, you know, just, just you know, for fun. Uh, Halloween's next weekend. If you're not that into uh, scary movies, you want something a little different to get your attention, you know, maybe pick up a copy or I'm sure you can find it online. Sinners in the hands of a, an angry God. Well... I want to talk about that sermon just a little bit. Uh, it's important to note, just right off the bat, that Edwards is not saying that God is just like an angry, vengeful, mean God who is just on a rampage against anything and everything. That's, that's not what he's saying. 
In fact, it should be noticed, noted that Jonathan Edwards gave a lot of sermons over a lot of years, and most of his sermons were very much focused on the love of God. So I just want to throw that out there. But in this particular sermon, um, it's pretty intense. He describes how God's anger burns against sin and against evil and wickedness and those who heart, whose hearts are still held in sin. And he does this through imaginative and vivid and intense detail. Um, it's also interesting, his scripture text for this sermon is only like seven words long. It's Deuteronomy 32:35, which simply says, their foot shall slip in due time. And then he just runs with it from there. Um, but in his sermon, Edwards describes the fragile state of really every person alive. We, we all know that life is precious. We all know that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We know that life can suddenly or unexpectedly end for us at any moment, really. But he also talks about how especially precarious it is for one who is unregenerate or not born again, as uh, he uses that language uh, quite a bit, or not born of the Spirit. And he says that it is by the mere pleasure and will of God that the wicked are not already in hell. And essentially he's saying they're playing with fire. <laughs> uh, and uh, all right, if I read a little paragraph or two out of, out of his sermon. All right. Uh, I'm not going to read much, just, just a little bit, just to give you kind of a taste of what he's saying. He says, what we have previously discussed is true of every one of you that are not in Christ. The coming world of misery and the lake of burning brimstone are directly under you. There is nothing between you and that dreadful pit of the glowing flames of the wrath of God but air. Hell's wide, gaping mouth is open, and you have nothing to stand upon, nor anything to take hold of. It is only the power and mere pleasure of God that holds you up. And it kind of goes from there. Uh, he gives a number of illustrations, um, and said you can read those on your own if you want I'm not going to read those but it, it's kind of hard to tell at times where the grace is in the passage or in his sermon but there's grace in his sermon the grace is found one in that the fact that you know the unregenerate the sinners are alive and have the opportunity to turn to God they have that opportunity. There is grace in that. And then ultimately, the fullest uh, manifestation of God's grace is in Christ. And that's where he's trying to point his listeners to, that it is God's grace that will save them from destruction. So I know this topic is pretty heavy. It's like, wow, God, or Tyler's talking about sinners in the hands of an angry God. But I just I want to make this note this morning because we are happy and comfortable to talk about the joy of our salvation, of being redeemed, of being delivered, of being saved. But we shy away from seriously considered, considering what we are saved from. We might think, oh, I'm just kind of saved from darkness. I'm just kind of saved from you know, bad things, or I'm just kind of saved from sin. Well, not exactly. 
As ironic as it may sound, we are saved by God, from God. We are saved ultimately from the consequence of our sin, which is God's judgment and punishment of wickedness, described as God's wrath. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament talk about uh, you know, this coming time when God will punish sin. Sometimes it's called the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, the day of wrath, or the wrath of God. And I'm not going through a whole, not going to go through a whole list of verses, but just two quick ones from Romans. From Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And a few verses later in chapter 2, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. But people might say to this in protest, wait, but God is love. 1 John 4, 8 clearly says this, and yes, God is love. And I challenge you with this question, what is the proof of God's love? And that's where you have to keep reading, even in, in a, a passage like 1 John chapter 4, because you pick up in verse 9 and it says, God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love is made manifest to us through God's judgment of sin, which Christ assumed for us. And even a few verses later in that same chapter, it repeats, God is love. But you have to keep reading still. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may be, or that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. God's love cannot be fully understood without God's judgment and punishment of sin and evil. Because God's love is intricately woven with God's justice. Even a famous verse like John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him may not perish. What do we think that perish is? It's probably referring to the wrath of God because if you go later in that chapter, John the Baptist is speaking, but it says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. I think I hopefully kind of made my point there. I'm going to wrap up talking about wrath. But here's the observation that I want to make. Sin is serious. It's not something we can just kind of flippantly, or that we should flippantly just kind of push to the side, sweep under the rug. Our only hope from sin is to cling to Christ. Jonathan Edwards, in his sermon, considered very seriously the real consequences of sin and that the only hope was in Christ alone. As did Martin Luther, the great reformer, and I'm not going to talk much about him because, just FYI, next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, and so Harry might talk about, uh, more about Martin Luther. But at the beginning of his, his ministry, he really struggled with his sin until the gospel was made more real to him. The Apostle Paul took very seriously the real consequences of sin. And he even said of of himself, 
wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? It's in Romans chapter 7. And so King David, too, as we have seen, took very seriously the real consequences of sin when he pours out to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. One of the most important qualities that we can pray for and nurture in our spiritual lives is a repentant heart. And out of a repentant heart comes a revival of the soul, which is uh, where I want to point us to next in verses 6 through 12. David sings out in verse 6, You desire truth in the inward being. Therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart. In these words, David is expressing his want for God's wisdom to penetrate the very core of his being, to desire that sort of intimate knowledge of God. And he longs for this right way of thinking that aligns with God's ways. This is, it's a revival of his heart. And he continues you know, to say, purge me, wash me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my transgressions. Simply put, he desires purity. He desire, he's seeking holiness. He wants holiness for his life. And the whole psalm is great, but I'm going to keep moving forward because I particularly love the next few verses. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Should be the prayer for all of us. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain in me a willing spirit. One thing that I love about uh, these verses is the very first word in verse 10, the word create. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's a, the verb pronounced bara. But it's the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word is unique in the Hebrew Bible because it's only used to describe God's activity. You know, people make things all the time and fashion things, but it's only that word create that God does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth because only God could. Create in me a clean heart, O God, because only God can. These verses, in a sense, reflect Christ for us and what Christ completes in us. Because in Christ, we have a clean heart. In Christ, we have a right spirit within us, the spirit of Christ. In Christ, we are assured that nothing at all can separate us from the love of God. And we are sealed by his spirit. In Christ, we have the joy of salvation. In Christ, we are sustained always by his Holy Spirit. This is the effect of the gospel of God for sinners like us. The old is gone. The new has come. And we should nurture a want and a desire for a pure heart devoted to God. And so for that, David serves as our example. And as Peter encouraged us, be holy, for God is holy. 
And so with a clean heart, we come to our, our final point in the last few verses. And I'm going to make this part pretty brief. But verses 13 through 19, our response. So what started as repentance and revival now sends us outward in a response. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. There's this evangelicalistic attitude about that, that he is going to go out and share God's love and what God has done and make that known. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth to declare your praise. The joy of our salvation in Christ becomes the song of our own hearts, and it's our joy to worship the Lord. Uh, Earlier I noted or referenced uh, what Paul said in Romans 7 when he said, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? He answers that question for us. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. His response is a response of thanks. Wretched man that I am, this misery that I have, this sin that I have, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I want to return real quick to Jonathan Edwards uh, briefly, just as I close. There's probably a perception of Jonathan Edwards as a judgmental, harsh, unhappy, kind of what his face looks like on the cover of this book, uh, fire and brimstone kind of person that only thought of God as angry. But that's one of the most inaccurate portraits of who he really was. Jonathan Edwards had a contrite heart and a deep, deep, sincere and abiding faith. And I want to share just a a brief quote that that he wrote in in one of his personal uh, memoirs. It says, God appeared to me a glorious and lovely being, chiefly on account of his holiness. The holiness of God has always appeared to me the most lovely Of all his attributes, I have loved the doctrines of the gospel. They have been to my soul like green pastures. A little different flavor than sinners in the hands of an angry God. That was his heart. That was his his spiritual heartbeat. was for the gospel. God was working through Jonathan Edwards. And um, at a young age, he he converted to Christianity or, or was born again, um, if we want to call it that, at the age of 19. And not long after his conversion to the faith, he wrote a series of uh, resolutions. You can, you can buy the, the little book of resolutions that he made for his life. And he largely lived by them for the rest of his life. He'd read them daily, each and every day. And most of them were living for the glory of God, were loving his neighbor, or being fruitful and productive for God's glory. Like his, his outpouring, his heart was to serve God. And so I think he serves for us as a, as a great example to keep in mind. Um, he was also a, a loving husband and a father to get this 11 children, so had a, had a number of children. Served a lot of churches, preached in a lot of churches, wrote extensively. He spent time ministering amongst Native American tribes before finally being asked uh, to be president of what is now Princeton University. Uh, But he would only serve there for three months before he he died. But I want to end with these final words of Jonathan Edwards' life. He's on his 
deathbed. And these are his, his final words, and so may they be the words for us this morning as well. Trust in God, and you need not fear. <laughs>